The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes creating a professional website for your business, personal brand or portfolio so easy it's newsworthy. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Claire Armistead. This week, we talk to three writers who have abandoned the quick hit of the single novel to devote years of their lives to writing series. Amitav Ghosh has just completed an epic three-part work which has taken him more than 10 years to write and is being hailed as one of the monumental literary achievements of the early 21st century. The husband and wife writing duo Nikki French are in the middle of a thriller series which packs a decade of its characters' lives into the days of the week. It began with Blue Monday and has just reached its fifth instalment with Friday on My Mind. You can see where it's headed. But we start in the 19th century with Ghosh, whose Ibis trilogy looks at the international impact of the Opium Wars on Asia. The first volume, Sea of Poppies, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize in 2008. The final volume, Flood of Fire, channels this huge story through the lives of four ordinary people. He came in to talk to the critic Alex Clark, who began by asking him how it felt to have reached the end of his marathon. Well, yeah, it's an extraordinary feeling, uh, you know. Usually when I finish a book, there's that sort of postpartum depression, you know, you feel sad to have finished. But in this instance, I must say, when I finished this book, I just felt an incredible sense of fulfillment, you know, because when I started this trilogy, I knew it would take me 10 years or more, and it has taken me slightly more than 10 years. And at the end of it, I just feel that, you know, I managed to do what I set out to do. And what was that? Uh, you know, it was really to sort of create a world, if you like. You know, I think that's what novelists do, and especially the novelists I really love. That's what they do. You know, they create worlds which you enter. And in that sense, you know, this is really um, that deep immersion experience in a certain moment and time and moreover a moment uh, uh, that's really unknown to us that's lapsed you know in memory this is the middle of the 19th century in india and in this last book going out into china isn't it yes uh, really the trilogy ranges from 1838 to 1842 and it covers this whole period uh, and this whole sort of range of inter-oceanic uh, connections, really, between India and Mauritius and uh, India and China. And yes. what it's all, all centred on, and in fact leads up to and, and gets into in this final book, Flood of Fire, is the first opium war. And really, you seem to me to be saying the way that opium has shaped the world that we know. Yes, yes. I mean, for me, that was the great discovery of working on this trilogy. You know, to discover really how profoundly opium has affected, you know, India, India's history, and certainly China. You know, in that sense, I I do think the first opium war is um, an event of incredible significance, you know. I mean, we're always told how the French Revolution was, if you like, the origin of modernity as we know it. But when you look back from a non-Eurocentric perspective, especially today when India and China are increasingly important on the world stage, I think you see the picture quite differently, you know. And really, that sort of Asian modernity, uh, you know, really does begin with uh, the first Opium War. Now, 
You had written several books before you sat down to write this trilogy, all of them discrete, freestanding novels or pieces of non-fiction. Why begin ten years ago just to sit and write this trilogy? What made you think, I want to expand this world? You know, I didn't start with the idea of a trilogy. But as soon as the first characters came to me, you know, within six months of working with them, I knew that I, I wouldn't be able to finish this project in one book because these characters were really interesting and compelling to me, you know, and I wanted to stay with them for a long time. I wanted to really explore that texture of life, you know. It's something very particular to India, I think, and certainly so much the texture of my own life when, you know, generations sort of intersect, when families intersect with each other and, you know, you know your friends' children and, you know, they become a part of your life. And I wanted to explore that, you know, this sense of um, deep and lasting connections between people, you know, that uh, sort of unfold over time. Tell us a little bit about the four stories that interlock in this last part of the trilogy. Well, there's the story of Zachary Reed. He's a young American uh, who's passing for white, actually. He was one of the central characters in Sea of Poppies, and he enters this, you know, he's really, I would say, one of the central characters in Flood of Fire. Then there's Havildar Kesri Singh. He's a sepoy. Uh, he's the brother of Diti, uh, who's the central character in Sea of Poppies. And he's a very important um, figure in, in this book. There's Shireen uh, Modi. Uh, she's the widow of Bahram Modi, who's the central character in A River of Smoke. Bahram Modi is a rich Parsi merchant from Bombay. And Sh uh, Shireen Modi's uh, journey to China is really one of the central stories in this book. And there's uh, uh, Mrs. Burnham. Uh, Mrs. Burnham is the is the wife of uh, Mr. Burnham, who uh, you know, who's been a major figure in all these books. He's a opium trader based in Calcutta, and of course, there's also Neil Ratan Haldar. Uh, Neil um, has been really an important character through the trilogy, and uh, Neil here is actually in China. He sees the unfolding of the opium war from the Chinese point of view. And he's an important figure, isn't he? Because he records it all. He's writing down his story as he goes along. Yes, yes, exactly. Neil uh, is a philologist, really. I mean, he's interested in words. And he's interested in recording things, you know, uh, just as I would have been had I been there, I think. And uh, yes, in that sense, Neil is the chronicler of the entire Ibis trilogy, in a sense. Neil certainly has a delight in words, but so do you. This book is absolutely brimming, as have the other two in the trilogy been, with all sorts of words that are unfamiliar to us, that have a kind of meaning in context, and that, of course, we can go and find out what they mean, but there are so many of them, they come at us at the, like a freight train. They're incredible. How much fun was that, creating the language of the book? Oh, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. And people often say to me, oh, these words, we don't know them. But actually, I would say 80% of these words are in the Oxford English Dictionary, the longer Oxford English Dictionary. And they're in many other dictionaries, you know. I mean, so, you know, the English of the 19th century was uh, something quite different uh, from the, um, the English of today, you know. Especially English as spoken by English people living in India was very, very different from standard English, you know. that They were certainly not speaking the language of Jane Austen, you know. Uh, because, you know, you have to remember that uh, a lot of the English people who lived in India, uh, they grew up with uh, Hindustani being their first language because they were brought up by ayahs and so on. And um, Rudyard Kipling famously uh, didn't speak any English till he was six, you know. 
So, um, of course, their language was very much inflected by Hindustani words, by words from many parts of India. So the English of that time was something, uh, you know, very, very richly textured. And it's been incredible fun, really, to try and recreate, uh, as it were, the texture of that language. I wonder if you could read us a little bit that illustrates that. And it also illustrates another part of the book, which is this rather kind of, well, chaotic, raunchy, hilarious subplot of the relationship between Mrs. Burnham and Zachary Reed. Mrs. Burnham delighted in tantalising Zachary with unfamiliar words and puzzling expressions. Yet, no matter how intimate their bodily explorations, no matter how much they indulged their appetite for each other, there remained certain matters of decorum on which she would not yield. Even when the organ that she had nicknamed the Bohorda Sipoy was entrenched within her, its master and commander remained Mr. Reed, the mystery, and she was never anything but Mrs. Burnham, the BB of Bethel. Once, when her shoke was coming on, as she liked to say, he felt the onset of her tremors and cried out to urge her on, Oh, spend, Cathy, spend! Don't stint yourself! No sooner had the syllables left his mouth than she froze, her shoke forgotten. What? What was that you called me? Cathy. Oh, no, my dear, no, she cried, twitching her hips in such a way as to abruptly unbivouac the sepoy. I am, and I must remain, Mrs. Burnham to you, and you must ever remain Mr. Reed to me. If we permit ourselves to lapse into Zach's and Cathy's in private, then you may be sure that our tongues will ambush us one day when we are in company. In just such a way was poor Julia Fairley found to be luchering with her groom. For who has ever known a Saiz to call his memsahib Julie, as the wretched Ulu was heard to do one day as he was helping her into the saddle? And so was it revealed that much of their riding and saddling was done without horses, and in no time at all poor Julia was packed off to do lally, and all because she'd allowed that halal core of a Saiz to be too free with two syllables. No, dear, no, it just will not hoga. Mrs. Burnham and Mr. Reed we are, and so we must remain. That also told me for the first time that Dilali was an actual place. Yes, it was Devlali <laughs> in India, yes. It had one of the earliest asylums, yes. Now, of course, the relationship between Mrs. Burnham and Zachary is a disruption of hierarchies, and it? it has to remain clandestine. Yes. Um, and there are all sorts of other disruptions that go on in this book, not least the fact that people have to leave their countries. And you mentioned Kesri Singh, the Havildar, who is, he's attached himself and has a great relationship, really, a very moving relationship with the English army officer whom he serves. But this idea of going to fight in foreign lands and everybody moving around all the time is quite new, isn't it? It's quite revolutionary in this book. Uh, yes, but it's not new. I mean, it was a fact of history, you know, from the 1760s onwards. Indian soldiers fought most of Britain's colonial wars, especially in Asia. You know, they fought in Malaya, in Java, um, throughout India. They really conquered India for the British in Sri Lanka, you know, and then uh, China. So, uh, you know, this was very much a fact of our life in the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, you know, Indian uh, soldiers, sepoys, you know, campaigning uh, for the British Empire. And then finally going into China. Yes, and not just once. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Indian soldiers in the first Opium War, uh, it was largely fought by Indian soldiers. You know, in the in the, in the years 1840-41, uh, the entire expeditionary force consisted of about 4,000 fighting men. And of that, uh, more than 2,000 were Indian. 
and the support staff, that is to say camp followers and so on, they were all Indian. So if there were 10,000 men in the expeditionary force, about 8,000 of them would have been Indian. Now, I have to ask you, when you finished a work of 10 years, uh, of course, everybody from the outside thinks you might have a tremendous breather after that. I wonder if you're immediately on to another project and whether it will be similarly expansive in length and scope. <laughs> you know, I've thought about that often. I don't think I could ever do anything of, uh, you know, of this kind of scope ever again. I mean, it's really physically exhausting. I mean, it's mentally and physically exhausting. Um but, you know, it, that's why it was so incredibly fulfilling. But in these 10 years that I've been working on, on these books, I've had so much else building up, you know, so many ideas, so many thoughts, so, so much else that I want to write. So really, almost at the week I finished uh, this book, I started working on, an, um, you know, on other things. So I'm really very much occupied with, uh, <laughs> with other projects. Yes. That's good news. Thank you very much for joining us, Amit. <laughs> Thank you, Alex. It was really a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Guardian listeners get the latest news, but they can also create it. With our sponsor Squarespace, you can easily create an elegant website for your personal brand, online store, business, personal portfolio, or blog. Whoever you are, Squarespace's simple tools and elegant designs make your ideas newsworthy and accessible to any audience. Try it at squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off. Amitav Ghosh and Flood of Fire is published by John Murray. From a sprawling historical epic, we zoom in now to the human mind with thriller writing duo Nikki French, a.k.a. Nikki Gerard and Sean French. They join me now to discuss their serial project, the Frida Klein novels, which has just reached its gripping fifth instalment with Friday on my mind. It was a Friday and it had only just stopped raining. Kitty's parents drank coffee and Kitty, whose school was closed for a training day and who'd been looking forward to this trip for weeks, frowned over her notebook while a voice on the tannoy said that the River Thames was a pageant of history. It was from here, said the voice, that Francis Drake had set off to circle the globe and it was here that he returned with a ship full of treasure and became Sir Francis Drake. Kitty was so busy that she was almost irritated when her dad sat down beside her. We've stopped, he said, so we can look at the Thames and at London Bridge. I know, said Kitty. Do you know London Bridge is falling down? We'd done that at school. Did it. Kitty ignored this and carried on writing. So, what have you seen? Kitty finished the word she was writing, the tip of her tongue protruding from the side of her mouth. Then she held up the notebook. Five things, she said. What five things? A bird. Her dad laughed. She frowned at him. What? No, that's very good. A bird. What else? A boat. What? This boat? No. She rolled her eyes. Another boat. Good. A tree. Where? It's gone. She looked back at her notebook. A car. Yes, there are lots of cars driving along by the river. That's very good, Kitty. Is that all? And a whale. Her dad looked at the notebook. Whale has an H in it. W-H-A-L-E. But this is a river, and it doesn't have whales in it. I saw it. When? Now. Where? Kitty pointed. Her dad stood up and walked to the side of the boat. 
And then the day that was already exciting got more and more exciting. Her dad shouted something and then he turned to Kitty and shouted even louder. He told her to stay exactly where she was and not to move a single step. Then he ran along the deck and down the steps and the man who was talking on the loudspeaker stopped and then said things in a loud voice that sounded completely different. Other people started running around on the deck and looking over the side and shouting and a fat woman began to cry. The loudspeaker said that people should move away from the side, but they didn't. Kitty's mum came and sat next to her and talked to her about what they were going to do next and about the summer holidays, which weren't long off now. They were going camping. Then Kitty heard the loud noise of an engine and she got up and saw a huge motorboat heading along the river and getting closer and closer until it stopped and she felt the waves from it move their own boat up and down so that she almost fell over. Kitty's mum got up and stood with everyone else at the railings. Kitty could only see their backs and the backs of their heads. It was like being at Madame Tussauds where her dad had had to put her on his shoulders. This time she could go to the edge of the group and look through the railings. She could read the writing on the side of the boat. Police. That would be number six on her list. Two men were climbing down on a little ledge at the back of the boat. One of them had big yellow clothes on and gloves that looked like they were made out of rubber and he actually got into the water. Then men used ropes and they started to pull the thing out of the water. There were groaning sound from the people on the boat and some of them moved away from the railings and Kitty got an even better view. Other people were holding their phones up. The thing looked strange, all blown up and blotchy and milky coloured, but she knew what it was. The men wrapped it in a big black bag and zipped it up. The two boats moved together and one of the men climbed from the other boat onto the lower deck of this boat. The other man, the one in the big yellow clothes, stayed on the other boat. He was fixing a rope and tying a knot. When he'd finished, he stood up and he looked at Kitty at exactly the same moment that she was waving at him. He smiled and gave a wave and she waved back. Nothing was happening now, so she went and sat down again. She wrote a number six and circled it and wrote, Police. Then she looked at number five. Carefully, letter by letter, she crossed out whale until it was entirely obliterated. With great concentration, she wrote M-A-N. It's a fantastic set piece opening involving characters who don't actually appear again in this novel, do they? They don't appear again. But this, of course, is obviously going to involve... Frieda Klein. Frieda Klein. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not clear at this stage how, but very soon she's brought in because it's a story that relates back to the previous novels in, in this series. Yes, so the body that's found in the river turns out to be someone intimately connected with Frieda. It was absolutely deliberate that for a few chapters we do not see Frieda Klein. And then we, when we see her... We see her from the outside at first and then she gradually gets drawn into the book. She gets drawn into an investigation because she needs to find out why this body was in the river. Sean, tell us about Frida Klein, more about her. Well, in a, in a way, when we came across the character of... Uh, when, we almost, when we came across her, it's almost as if she kind of found us because we, we, were, we were talking and, and about the idea of having a central character who's a kind of therapist who believes, because she has a very kind of pessimistic view of the world and thinks the world is this terrible, chaotic place that you, do, you can't really do anything about, 
But the one thing you can do, do something about is what's in your head or the turmoil. You can give that a shape. You can give that a narrative. So she's almost like a, someone who's agoraphobic. You know, she solves problems in her consulting room. And we thought, what about if we took a character like her and she was actually dragged out of her consulting room and really forced to, through circumstances, to, to deal with the messy world and, and solve problems. So that, in a way, that's how yeah, we started and then writing once, about Once it. we thought of her, and we, we had this idea of a woman who was very solitary, almost reclusive sometimes, very prickly, really good at sensing other people's secrets and very, very good at guarding her own secrets. Once we had that image of her in our head, it just seemed very obvious that she wouldn't give up her secrets to the reader just in one book. She needed more time and space for us to discover her, really. So that's when we started writing our series. We wanted it to be a kind of series which is about different kinds of kind of emotional dread. So each book, we're almost trying to think of different fears. And then the, the overarching story is very kind of dark and quite odd. Let's talk a little bit about the characters. There's, for example, um, the Ukrainian builder <laughs> who, who, who actually falls through the ceiling in yes. Blue Monday. And that was really important that he fell through the ceiling because, in fact, it was something that's actually happened to us in our life. We were sitting around a table and this person was mending something upstairs, fell through the ceiling and landed at our feet. And we waited for 20 years to use that in the book. And it's important that Joseph falls through the ceiling because he literally crashes into Frida's life. Frida doesn't want people in her life and he crashes into it and forces his way in. And for us, he's almost like the truth teller of the series. He kind of stands outside of her normal group of friends and can see things more clearly. And most of her friends, they're, quite, they're either dysfunctional people or they're police and psychotherapists. <laughs> well, but you know, one, one of the <laughs> interesting things for us about writing a series is because normally when we did books before, this is what, you know, I mean, of course the satisfaction of that is you wrap up the world, you wrap up the story and it comes to an end. Whereas in a way what's been interesting to us is, I mean, Frida's a kind of solitary person who kind of attracts people, in like, almost like kind of barnacles or something. These people, she just, as she, you know, crashes through these different stories, she, she accumulates people who she's helped or who she's had been in conflict with. So because she's had a very complicated relationship with the police, so she, she knows various police people. One of the things, again, that's very important to us, she doesn't want to be a detective. She doesn't want to be... Solid. She keeps trying to escape from it and circumstances drag her back into it. And then she's got some patients who've become friends or, or yes, there have been fellow colleagues or people or pupils of hers. And so it's, I mean, another... It's a real important thing for us in, in writing a series is because it goes year after year and then people... You know, some of the some of the people who are in Blue Monday were teenagers and are now grown up. You know, and it's that it's showing how people get marked by time and how they develop, and and that's been a really interesting challenge. Frida's good at she's in a way she's good at helping people. But sometimes the people aren't necessarily in a better state after they've been helped There's by Frida. <laughs> because, because actually, because sometimes the, the truth she finds out, you, know, you may know the truth, but maybe, maybe you were better off with your illusions, you know. So that, so, and that's, that's interesting about, I mean, what, you know, the classic thing that Freud, you know, I think said about what was the purpose of, of, of therapy was to restore you to ordinary unhappiness, you know. And, that, and in a way, Frida certainly, she's a kind of sleek stoic. She, you know, she doesn't feel that life is to be happy and it's to be sort of struggled through with a certain feeling about that you've got to you've got to face the truth 
There, there's something um, quite distinctive about the choice to have a, a long-running character, but not very long-running, running through eight books, not like Rebus, but <laughs> not like your ordinary standalones, which have a different character every time. What made you make that decision? And I mean, might you just bring her back after the eight days because she's well, so Well, the series will be over after eight books. So I think that will be the end of the Free Decline series. And what made us choose eight books? Well, first of all, we did like... I mean, partly it's kind of being influenced by these wonderful television series and things. We love the sense of that arc. So this overarching story that holds the other eight stories together. So that was important. And when we, when we were thinking about how many books to do, we knew we wanted to do more than three because three years is not enough of a life to have a sense of a life, to have a sense of how life can change. So actually eight years was like saying, this is a decade in the life of Frida and in the life of her kind of chosen family, if you like. And in that decade, everyone gets completely kind of bashed about by life and they kind of suffer and they learn things and they all go on their journeys. And we want to have that sense of this group of people moving through life and showing what life does to them through the medium of a crime series. Yeah, obviously I remember as a, sort of, you know, as a teenager watching things, when, you know, as a very literal-minded teenager, but watching series like Columbo, and you, and you started thinking, my God, this detective, he's like, he solved sort of 200 murders, you know, and he doesn't seem to be much affected by it, and, and people are still being really patronising to him because <laughs> he doesn't wear a nice raincoat, you know. And in a way, because we're really trying to show, I think as Nikki's saying, is that, is, you know, the kind of toll that life takes, you know, and when you've gone through some dramatic things, because one thing is we try and show, you know, when we ha have things like, you know, kinds of trauma or kinds of violence, uh, we, we really want to f feel that's what it's really like to go through this, you know, which is partly because, you know, which, which everyone knows about, you know, as you grow older, you realise you're marked by your experiences. And so, uh, so, so I think there's a particular reason for going through a certain amount of time, but not, you know, we don't have 50 of them, I don't think. So now, I, you two, you work together. <laughs> You live together. I have this image of your <laughs> private life of being, of being sort of very gloomy over the dining oh, table, discussing kinds of trauma and murder. Is that, is that a true reflection? It can be gloomy sometimes. I think that actually, you know, writing Nikki French books t together has been our way of exploring the world together. So, which is both kind of exciting, interesting... And actually quite consoling because when you can, it's, it's a way of us thinking about the things that make us fearful or jealous or sad or confused and writing about them. So in a way, that's what Nikki French has been for us, like a medium of thinking about the world. And yeah, and actually I think that lots of kind of psychological thrillers now, you know, however dark they are, you know, and now they're darker than they've ever been, I think. They don't need those kind of neat endings. Nevertheless, they give a kind of shape to chaos. So there's a great consolation about detective novels, and maybe that's why people love them so much, because they, they become a place where you can safely think about the things that most terrify you. How did the two of you fit together in the writing? <laughs> where's Nikki and where's, where's Sean? Well, in the, do you know, this? it's very interesting. The very first book we wrote 20 years ago, uh, The Memory Game, it happened that the particular subject, which was about recovered memory or false memory or that, that whole controversy, it happened overwhelmingly to women. So when we turned it into a story and had it told in the first person, it had a female narrator. And so therefore, when we came to decide 
when the book was accepted for publication, that we wanted to put one name, not both our names on it, that it just made sense to have a, a woman's name on the cover because it was told by a woman. And so almost we then suddenly found that we were uh, a female uh, psychological thriller writer. So we almost drifted into finding that there was this, there was this Nicky French who had this particular kind of imagination. You know, had our first idea been about a character that really had to have a male protagonist, then maybe we'd have gone in a completely different direction. I mean, it's amazing how we found it sort of almost dictated a whole, a certain kind of imagination that we both wrote into or both fed into. We're kind of writing to each other and to ourselves, so it's like a kind of strange, hidden conversation between ourselves. I'm sort of, you know, people are kind of curious about how we collaborate, and I'm curious about, well, I'm actually pretty curious about how we collaborate, because they're still rather baffling to me, but also, I'm really interested in when I find other couples who've you know, there are other thriller writers who are, who are couples, and they, they're generally really different from us in that they usually... I mean, the one I'm, that I know best are Sjöval and Valur, the, the great Swedish crime writers who were in the 60s and 70s. And, uh, the, you know, they, they had a real division of labour, where I think he wrote the police procedural stuff and she wrote stuff that was more like a novel. Whereas we have none of that at all. You know, when we do research, we both do the research. We never decide in advance when we plan a book, oh, you know, Nicky, you'd better write this because it's got more women talking together or something like that, you know, or I'll do this really nasty, violent bit. You know, there's nothing. We don't, we don't, you know, just whoever happens to be the one at that stage writing it. I mean, I think there are really interesting positives about it, but there's certainly, it's a very time-consuming and it takes a long time. Because, too, you're duplicating because, yeah, some of well, we're not, duplicating. We're, not, we're, never, we're not writing at the same time. We, we know there's nothing quick about it and there's nothing efficient about it. You know, and we're endlessly rewriting each yeah. other, so... Who likes almond pastries? Because <laughs> they, <laughs> almond pastries figure quite a lot, don't we? We have about three and a half rules about work collaborating, and one of them we never say, reveal anything at all about who has contributed some, anything to the books. Even to our own children, we've never once said, oh, you know, I wrote that bit, or that, you know. You probably perfectly share the almond pastries, then. <laughs> I'm not even going to comment on that. <laughs> so we're giving way too much away. Thank you very much. <laughs> Mickey French. Friday on My Mind is published by Michael Joseph. And that's all we have time for this week. Plenty of reading there to take you through the summer, but please do come back next week where we'll be making a detour into science and the environment. If you have anything to say about this podcast, we always love to hear your comments. If you've come to us through SoundCloud or iTunes, you can find us by searching for Guardian Books Podcast. For now, from me and my producer, Eva Krishak, thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.